Paul from 2 Timothy chapter 2 excuse me cha- uh, chapter 1 verses 1 to 14 Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy my beloved child grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I am reminded... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me, if you would, in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks and we give you praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our beds and into worship with your gathered bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for our worship so far this morning in song and in liturgy and in confession. Lord, we thank you for the worship that you will allow us to participate in, Lord, through the preaching and teaching of your word, Lord, and through Eucharist and communion, Lord, through more singing and prayer. So, Lord God, we do pray as we open your word together this morning, as we look at it deeper in the book of 2 Timothy, Lord, we pray, God, that you would pour out your spirit among us. Lord, and help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray all these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, last week, um, I began, or we began, rather. um, I mean, I know I did the preaching, but, you know, we do this together, right? So last week we began, we finished up 1 Timothy, and we're moving now into 2 Timothy. But we began last week by asking a question about contentment. Right. In 1 Timothy 6, we see this idea of how are we content? We ask the question, are, how are we satisfied? Are we satisfied in Christ or are we trying to find satisfaction by our own means? Well, in a similar way then, I want to start 
2 Timothy and this week by asking a question that I really think our text asks us of or asks of us. And it's this. What kind of legacy are we passing on? What kind of heritage or legacy are you passing on? Are we passing on a legacy of faith or a heritage of faith or are we passing on a heritage or legacy of fear? Now, truly, depending upon your age, legacy may not be something that's at the forefront of your mind. It really somewhat kind of depends on how old you are sometimes, right? When, uh, when you're older or when you're reaching middle age, when you're getting closer to middle age as, as I am, you start to think about legacy, right? Because not, not so much because you feel like you're old, but you realize I'm almost halfway done. <laughs> and so you start to think about what you're leaving behind. The other reason why I think we don't think about legacy all that much, especially in our Western context, is because we have a specific context of what legacy means in our culture, specifically when it comes to presidential legacies, right? So if we didn't like a president, we don't really care all that much about his legacy unless it affects us in some way. Or if we can use a negative legacy as a political jab in a conversation with somebody, right? This is just how we work. But I think this idea of legacy is a valid question to ask us as Christians and as believers and as members of the bride and body of Christ because it builds upon what Timothy has laid uh, excuse me what Paul has laid out so far in Timothy especially 1 Timothy. And now that we're moving into 2 Timothy, this is where Paul's mind is at. His mind is on legacy because as most scholars would agree, 2 Timothy is the very last letter that Paul ever penned. So he's concerned about passing on a right and Christ-centered legacy. He's concerned about leaving behind a legacy of faith. And so it's this idea of legacy that I really just want to focus on. There's a lot in this text today, but I just want to zero in and focus in on this one topic. Simply because I think this idea of a legacy or a heritage works not only to inform these 14 verses in 2 Timothy, but also really the rest of the text that we will look at from now until Christ the King Sunday next month. So let's just play a little game here and pretend that we know absolutely nothing about First and Second Timothy. Now for me, that's not hard to pretend you know, that I don't know anything, but let's pretend for a minute that we're coming at this completely brand new. That was a bad joke and you can all laugh at that, right? But let's pretend that we're coming at this completely brand new and this is the first time we've ever laid eyes on First Timothy and Second Timothy. So last, uh, the last three weeks, we've just looked at specific headings or specific sections of First Timothy, and now we're moving into Second Timothy. But very quickly, just from this text alone that we have this morning, we're able to notice a, a very unique and special bond between the Apostle Paul and Timothy that he's writing to. In verse 2, Paul refers to Timothy as his beloved child. Now, this is not because Timothy was his flesh and blood offspring, but because Timothy had become a son to Paul. He had become like a son to Paul through Christ, and he had become a son to Paul because he was sharing in the persecution and the life that Paul was enduring during his missionary journeys after Timothy had joined him. So Paul loves Timothy as if he were his own son. But based upon the context of what we looked at just even over three weeks in those few selections from 1 Timothy, we know that Timothy had a ministry in Ephesus. He was left behind in Ephesus to set some things in order. And so now that we're getting into 2 Timothy, we see at least just from a very first, first moment glance at this passage that Timothy might be, and I'm stressing the word might, he might be a little tempted to be hesitant in ministry just from what Paul is writing to him here. And this could possibly be due to the persecution that this church was dealing with, especially these false teachers that were making their way into the Ephesian church that we looked at over the last few weeks. 
in verse 8, we even get the sense that Timothy might even be embarrassed or even ashamed that Paul is imprisoned in the first place. Because he writes this, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So Timothy is either ashamed, just again at first glance, or he's being mocked by these false teachers to be ashamed of Paul for his imprisonment. But Paul, what he warns Timothy here is, look, don't be ashamed of me because being ashamed of me is tantamount to being ashamed of the message of the gospel itself. Because, not because Paul is equal to Christ, but because Paul is imprisoned for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul offers Timothy at the beginning of this letter, just in these 14 verses, he offers him another reminder of the truth of the gospel. But then as he closes out this text, he reminds him, he commends him to follow it and to guard it. But since, again, we're looking at this idea of it being the first time we're glancing at this, let's just connect it to what we've looked at just the last three weeks and these connections from 1 Timothy. Because we already know from Paul's first letter to Timothy that he, he pulls out specific themes. And I think this is the point of these lectionary readings. There's specific themes that Paul draws upon in these few readings that we had. These themes of servant ministry and these themes of the common ministry of every Christian, which is prayer for all people. And even our particular called ministries of like elder and deacon and frankly spouse or parent. And so just a quick overview of our text from today shows us that Paul is still thinking along those same thematic lines. We see both servant ministry and common ministry of prayer just in verses 3 and 4. He writes this again. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. In 1 Timothy 1.12, he writes, he writes this. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And an outworking of servant ministry occurs in our common ministry of prayer for all people that he reminded us of in 1 Timothy 2. He says, first of all, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But we also see Paul referencing these particular called ministries, right? Our, our ministries of eldership or, or teacher or pastor or deacon or whatever called ministry that God has called us to. And he says this in verse 6. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then down in verse 11 he says, I was appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. And over in 1 Timothy chapter one, chapter 2, verse 7, he said this, For this reason, I was appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and teacher to the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Paul is referencing again our called ministries. But then another theme that he brings out in this text that he's still thinking on today is this theme that everything is grounded in the truth of the gospel of Christ Jesus. He writes in our text here, starting in verse 8, he says, Share in the sufferings. For the gospel by the power of God, the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then in 1 Timothy, that one verse we kept coming back to from chapter 1 is 1 Timothy 1.15, where he says, this is a trustworthy saying, full, deserving of full acceptance. Christ came to save sinners. And he was given as a ransom for many, he reminded us in chapter 2. But then there's this final theme that we saw last week in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, where Paul commanded us, he said, you need to seize, you need to grasp, you need to take hold 
of the eternal life to which you were called in Christ. This is the salvation that we made a good confession of in the presence of many witnesses in our baptisms. And so now, building on those themes, what he says, what he does is Paul now kind of draws upon this sub-theme of a legacy or a heritage of faith, both in himself and in Timothy. And so let's just hang out here. And the reason we did that massive overview is to see how this starts to play in to this idea of legacy of faith. And so just starting in verses 3 and 4, we start to see Paul's legacy of faith that has been passed on to him. He writes here again, he says, I thank my God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And so there's two ways, especially in verse 3, that we see how Paul had a legacy of faith that aided him in seizing his own eternal life that he had been called to in Christ. And the first and most obvious is he says he serves God just like his ancestors did. Like many of us, Paul has received from his parents and his grandparents and his forefathers a pattern and an example of faithfulness to the Lord God. But Paul now rightly believes that the gospel of Christ is the fulfillment of the promises that were made to his ancestors. So what his ancestors trusted in anticipation, he now trusts in fulfillment. Calvin writes here, and he notes that by this statement, what Paul is doing is he's proving to both Timothy and to us and to anyone, especially these false teachers, that would question Paul's authenticity of his apostleship. He's proving that he had not abandoned the faith of his fathers. Rather, he had embraced the true fulfillment of the faith of his fathers. Calvin writes, he says, Paul does not rest solely on the authority of his ancestors, but he removes any false opinion that he had forsaken the God of Israel. And so the key here is that Paul had trusted in Christ as the fulfillment of the promises made to his ancestors. And so because of this legacy of faith that had been passed on to him by his ancestors, Paul was able to lay hold of Christ just as Christ had called him and laid hold of him. He was able to seize the truth of the salvation that is found in Christ alone. But second, we see in verse 3 that Paul notes that he's serving God as did his ancestors, but also with a clear conscience. And so to see this legacy of faith and how it's really working out in Paul's life, we have to take into consideration really where Paul is writing Timothy from. Because if you go back to 1 Timothy, if you go back to some of these other letters, you realize that Paul is writing to Timothy as he is in prison. Now, he is under house arrest in Rome, but house arrest in the first century is nothing like house arrest in the 21st century, right? There's no ankle monitors in the first century to make sure you don't leave. There's an armed guard outside your door. There's not television in your own bed, right? There's not making food in your own kitchen. There's not even having your supplies delivered to you by drone in a, you know, in a two or three day, you know, shipping thing. I'm, I'm quoting Amazon here, right? But the point is, is that in the first century, Prison was a lonely time, and it was an isolated time, and it was a needy time for someone that had been imprisoned. And so Roman prisons didn't provide food or for the regular care of their prisoners. If you had friends and family, it was their responsibility to do that. For Paul, and he notes this later in this letter, and he also has noted it in other letters, many of his so-called friends and companions had abandoned him. And those whom he wanted to see the most, such as Timothy, 
He had sent letters through or he had left them somewhere for the sake of ministry. And so to add insult to injury, though, because he was under house arrest, Paul most likely had to pay for his own imprisonment. This was not something that was provided for by the taxes of Rome. They had to pay for it themselves. And so to put it plainly, Paul's situation was dire and it was desperate. And he longed for community. But notice we see here, just in the way that he words this, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as I remember you consistently or constantly in my prayers day and night. His prison cell had not stopped him from serving God even in these lonely and isolated times. Those he thought were his friends may have deserted, may have deserted him, but, but Paul understood that God had not. And so Paul continues to serve the Lord with a clear conscience, walking faithfully before the Lord because of the legacy of faith that had been passed on and instilled in him by his parents and his grandparents and his ancestors. That legacy of faith that had been part of his entire life makeup since he was an infant. Paul is not falling away from Christ simply because he had been cast aside in a prison cell. Instead, he was seizing the eternal life to which he had been called And he continued to live out his servant ministry in Christ and his particular ministry of an apostle by praying for Timothy, but also by encouraging Timothy in his ministry and by longing for simple fellowship that comes with being with other believers in Christ. But as we move into verses 5 through 7, we notice that Timothy has his own legacy of faith. But not only was it his own, but Paul even contributed to this legacy of faith in Timothy. He says this in verses 5 through 7. He said, Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So for this reason, I am reminding you, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and of self control. And as I was studying this for this week, I noticed there's a similarity in what Paul mentions here compared to what we looked at last week with our baptisms. Our baptisms, we understand, are not just between us and Christ. There is a communal aspect to it. We talked about that some last week, and we'll bring it up again in a moment. But here, it's the same thing. A legacy of faith is also multidirectional. In the case of Timothy, it is both from his family But it's also from the greater church. The church takes part in how we pass on a legacy of faith. In verse 5, Paul details Timothy's legacy of faith from his family, particularly from his mother and his grandmother. He says first, he says, Timothy, you have a sincere faith. I am reminded of your sincere faith. This is a faith in Christ that Timothy has proven over and over again. Not only through suffering with Paul or being a companion with Paul, but even as he's continuing to be faithful to his calling in Ephesus. Timothy, and Acts 16 really shows us this, Timothy, he has a Christian mother or a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother, but his father was a Gentile. And so Timothy, whose father was a Gentile, even went so far in his commitment to the mission of the gospel that he allowed Paul to circumcise him in order to aid the message of the gospel going to the Jewish communities that knew that Timothy was of Gentile lineage. There's a lot more that goes into that, but this is a commitment to the message of the truth of Christ. To put it plainly, Timothy had seized the eternal life to which Christ had called him, and he publicly made a good confession in his baptism and had laid hold of Christ for the sake of the message of the truth of the gospel. 
And so Paul is telling us he's encouraged in his imprisonment by Timothy's faith. And he is thankful because Timothy, because he knows that Timothy's faith is authentic and it's real. And that Timothy had made it his own just as Christ had made Timothy his own. And so what Paul does then is he links the sincerity of Timothy's faith to the legacy of faith that was passed on to him by his grandmother and his mother. And the way in which he, he references them here, he says, a faith that fir- dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice. You almost get the feeling that Paul probably knew these two women, and he may have. Or, simply by virtue of just spending so much life with Timothy before he was imprisoned and leaving him in Ephesus, he got a good understanding that their faith in Christ was genuine. And their testimony of Christ then gives Paul confidence here that Timothy has a faith that is genuine and sincere as well. Theodoret of Seir writes here, he says that there's nothing that helps us so much as a domestic example of faith. And so Paul's point in referencing Timothy's mother and his grandmother is that they did not pass on a false gospel to Timothy, but a true gospel. And they did not pass on a hypocritical way of life, but a real way of life. And so Paul is grateful to God for the legacy of faith that Timothy had received from his mother and his grandmother. But notice he finishes this verse and he says this. He says, he says I'm, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure it dwells in you as well. This almost kind of reads like, I know your faith is sincere, but I'm, all, but I'm, I'm sure it's there. Like The way we read the word sure, I think, kind of gives us a, a hesitancy. But I don't think he's calling into question Timothy's sincerity of faith. I think what he's doing is he's underlying it as a subset of his good confession that we saw Timothy make in his baptism. And so in, the case, in this case, Timothy has made his good confession because he was trained up in it through a legacy of faith that was passed on from his grandmother and his mother. And so like Lois and like Eunice, like Paul's parents and grandparents, our desire should be to pass on a legacy of faith in Christ to the next generation. And so what Paul is reminding us here is that we understand that a faith in Christ, it's not a hereditary faith. It's a communal faith that we share, but it's a faith, but our, the faith of our parents cannot be inherited. It can only be passed on. And the only spiritual condition that we inherit from our fathers is our sinful position before God. That is all we inherit from our parents before God. So we must teach our children and teach the next generation, and we ourselves must remind ourselves that we must each seize our faith in Christ and make him our own as he has made us his own. Timothy, like his mother before him and his grandmother before her, they all had to grasp on and seize on to Christ for themselves. And it's right and it's godly to raise our children in the faith, and we should do so boldly and unapologetically. But we must also train them in what it means to seize Christ for their own. Otherwise, we are only passing on a legacy of false eternal security. And this is a truth that is both vital to grasp and heartbreaking to understand. Because every parent in the room that has a lost child understands this heartache. Not because they have failed their children, but because their children have not seized and laid hold of Christ for themselves. 
And so in this command here in verse 5, in this encouragement to Timothy in verse 5 that Paul is writing here, what he's also doing is challenging us to consider the impact that our faith can have on the next generation. And because his, grandpa- his mother and his grandmother have passed on a legacy of faith and trained him to seize Christ for his own, these seeds that Lois and Eunice had planted in the, into the heart of Timothy grew up into an, into an oak of righteousness. And so we must be bold in doing the same, and we must pass on a legacy of faith in Christ. And that can seem really hard right, and challenging because I think most days, at least I know for myself, this is hard enough to remember on my own, much less passing it on to someone else. But I think it's supposed to be challenging. It's supposed to be hard. But this is where we have to remind ourselves that thankfully we don't have to do this by ourselves. We don't have to do this alone. And so while family discipling and family discipleship is primary and it's vital for passing on a legacy of faith to the next generation, we also have the whole covenant community. We have the church as a partner for establishing a legacy of faith and then passing it on. Notice again what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and of love and of self-control. He writes here, he says, for this reason, he's pointing us and he's pointing Timothy back to this conviction that he has a conviction in Timothy's sincere faith. I know you have a sincere faith. And so he says, seize your faith then, Timothy. It's sincere. Seize it. And then set your ministry for God and your work for the church and Christ ablaze. Light it on fire. And this phrase here, this fan into flame, it it, it describes this aspect of rekindling a fire where the embers have burned really low or burned down to coals. For anybody that can actually set a fire without gasoline, you probably get what this means. So what this does, though, is this forces us to take account of whether or not we have allowed the flame of the Holy Spirit to die down within us to embers. And so Paul, what he does here in this verse is he makes this appeal for a continual and a vigorous use of the gifts that God has given us through his spirit. So let's make this relatable real quick. So what does this have to do with a legacy of faith? Because that's really the main theme that we're looking at. And how does that help us seize our own salvation? We have to ask this question, how has God gifted us? And are we using those gifts or have they burned down to embers? Jesus makes a statement to this same Ephesian church in Revelation 2, and he, he says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Have we abandoned the love that we had at first? Or God forbid, are we more like the church of Laodicea from Revelation where Jesus tells them that you've become neither hot nor cold, you've become lukewarm, and you are wretched? Are we using the gifts that God has given us? And so by remembering our baptisms, what we are doing is we are constantly fanning into flame our remembrance of whom we have believed and in whom we have confessed. And by fanning our confession into a roaring blaze, we are not only remembering our baptisms, but we are laying hold of Christ just as he has laid hold of us. Chrysostom writes here, he says, it requires much zeal to stir up the gift of God. As fire requires fuel, so grace requires zeal to be fervent. And then he says, by slothfulness and carelessness, this zeal is quenched. 
These gifts are quenched, but by watchfulness and by diligence, it is kept alive. So how are we using the gifts that God has given us? Have they burned down to embers? Well, then Paul would tell us here, he says, set them ablaze, fan them back into flame. And then furthermore, what he tells us in these verses, he says, when we encourage one another as partners in the church, when we encourage one another to fan into flame these gifts that God has given us, what we are doing is we are emboldening this legacy of faith that we're passing on. And we're emboldening it not only in ourselves and not only in our families and our individual homes and households, but we are emboldening it within the entire church. And this is the exact sentiment that I think Paul is intending here with this verse. Because again, he writes, he says, fan into flame this gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This is ordination language that he's using. But it's also warning language. Because he's telling us that while no one can give themselves the gift of God, it is only given to us through the Spirit. We can't allow the gifts of God to languish and to atrophy. Or as Chrysostom would say, to become slothful and careless. And notice here how what this does is this specifically brings in the partnership of the church into our lives, into the work of passing on a legacy of faith. And notice how this work is actually cyclical. Because what he's telling us is when a person is ordained, they are ordained for the purpose of ministry. They are ordained and sent out for the purpose of doing servant ministry or even the common ministry of prayer. And they're, done, they're ordained for the purpose into the service of Christ and his church. But then... The church, by confirming a person for ministry through ordaining them, what the church is doing is they are ensuring a continuation of a legacy of faith. And then as that ordained person engages in the work of ministry through teaching and through prayer and through evangelism and through whatever work of ministry that God has called us to, that person is, in, is contributing to the work of the legacy of faith by strengthening the church to strengthen families to pass on a legacy of faith in their own family. But then you hear this word, this language of ordination, and you're like, I'm not called to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a missionary or an evangelist or whatever label you want to put there. So what do I do with this? Well, this also works in relation to our baptisms like we saw last week. In our baptisms, in our salvation, and in our seizing of our own eternal life, because remember, when we are baptized, we are not only publicly saying that this is just between me and Christ. But when a person is baptized, they are entering into a covenant with the church. And the church is covenanting with them. So in a very real way, when we baptize someone, we are laying hands on them and we are professing that they have confessed Christ as their Lord. And we are also ordaining them for the work of being a believer in Christ for the common ministry that all Christians are called to. And so what Paul does then here in verse 7 is he grounds this aspect of fanning into flame by writing this. He says, Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands for this reason. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. He writes plainly, he says, To pass on a legacy of faith, we must not be afraid. Do not be afraid of the gifts that God has given us. And this is really where I think uh, translation is not really all that helpful because the Greek word used here for fear indicates cowardice more than fear. Because 
And what this does is this actually takes fear to a deeper level because there are many people who experience fear, but they're not cowards. And now that I think about it, I realize I had a conversation this morning about flying because Scott has tried to get me in a plane a few times. And I, I, I don't like flying. It makes me nervous. But I realize I'm just being a coward. I'm just being a coward. Right. This is not. I, but, and here, because here's the difference, right? A coward is someone who lacks the courage to face their fear. I'm being a bit of a coward when it comes to flying, not because of your ability to fly a plane, but because of my own fears of just being in the air, right? But a coward is someone who lacks the courage to act against their own fears in the face of opposition. And we understand, especially when it comes to the faith and when it comes to passing on a legacy of faith, that the Holy Spirit does not provoke cowardice in a believer. That is not what the Spirit does. Meaning, we are not to flee in cowardice from doing the work that God has called us to do, whatever type of ministry that might be. We are not to flee in cowardice when things get a little squirrely and out of hand. Through the Holy Spirit, God has supplied us with the ability and the strength And the courage to do the work of the kingdom of God that needs to be done in order to pass on a legacy of faith in Christ Jesus. And so as we before we come to the table, I just want to throw out three implications of what this means. Especially as we discuss how we are to pass on a legacy of faith. Because again, Paul writes in verse 7, he says, God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. This is how this works. Because a spirit of power, what a spirit of power does is it enables us to be bold in ministry. It enables us to be bold in the ministry that we have all been called to individually, but also just the regular everyday ministry of being a believer in Christ. But also the Holy Spirit who gives us power emboldens us to not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ Jesus, nor ashamed of anyone who is languishing as a prisoner for Christ. The spirit of power enables us to be bold instead to share in the suffering with those who are suffering for the gospel of Christ. And thereby, we are able to pass on a legacy of faith that is bold and powerful and mighty. And a spirit of love convicts us through love, to raise our families in the faith, but also to train them up to seize Christ for themselves and to make Christ their own as he has called them to his own. Thereby, what we do is we pass on a legacy of faith that is full of love and of care and desire to see the next generation make their own good confession in Christ. And then finally, the spirit of self-control, it really aids us in being humble. Because we need to be humble as we embrace this idea that we need to partner with one another to pass on a legacy of faith. We can easily be prideful and think that we can do it ourselves. And we were not called to do it ourselves. We were called to do it within the brotherhood and the family of God. So to put it simply, the work of the Spirit and relying on the work of the Holy Spirit that works within us. It is the work of the Spirit that enables us and emboldens us to pass on a legacy of faith in Christ. And our legacy is intentionally intertwined with the greater family of faith. So not just here at Christ Community and not just in our own homes, but within the greater church. 
the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 11 tells us of that points us to Christ and says, he is your God. And so here is the question that we'll end on. How are we passing on a legacy of faith? And how are we using the gifts that God has given to us? We've each made a good confession. So now let's seize it. And let's set it ablaze. And serve Christ and his church through it. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. But be bold. And as Paul ends here, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard. In the faith and love that are in Christ. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you and pass it on. Leave a legacy of faith. Thanks be to God. Amen.